Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Welcome back. It is a little bit of a lighter crowd tonight. As most of you know, um, we, did, we did voluntarily uh, decide to stop d- doing kids just for uh, kind of a service-by-service service basis. So for this week, no, there's no Awana tonight. There's no Sunday school this Sunday. And we just ask you to stay uh, connected to the website, to the church's Facebook page, social media. Uh, some of you are signed up for the email updates just to kind of um, know. It's week to week at this point, just to be caution-driven. Uh, That's our our desire, but the sanctuary is still open, so those of you that still want to join us in person, you're welcome to do so, and we still have the family room open, uh, options for you, so if you want to be among the body of Christ, you can, Um, and we'll work through this thing together, so in these winter months. We are in uh, 1 Samuel tonight, so if you have your Bible with you, if you are listening from home and you want to grab your Bible or your mobile device, you can follow along with us in your Bible even though the verses go up on the screen, we always, always recommend that you have your Bible in your hand, that you're looking at it on the page. You can see it written by God. You know where it is in the book. You can write in it. You can breathe on it. Your DNA can mix with it. It's just something there. So get your Bibles out. We are in chapters 23 and 24 tonight for our study. And I want to begin tonight, uh, first of all, in prayer, and then I'm going to ask you three questions. So let's pray. Father, we Again, just uh, come to you, Lord, as we approach your word now, and um, we just want to ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us. We know that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, We believe firmly, Lord, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction, and righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, we know that tonight as we read the testimony of your work in David's life, that you have overlaid it against our own, and you have something to say to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our understanding, that you would give us a vision of heaven, uh, that you'd give us a vision of your will in the big picture and for our lives individually, and that you'd show us, Lord, what uh, these words say to us today, Lord. And I believe you do have something to say to us today. So we pray, Lord, that you would just fill us now and give us uh, a keen eye and attention to you, Lord, and to your voice. So help us, Lord, we pray, and we ask these things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you three questions. You don't have to shout out the answer, but you can raise your hand if you want to. How many of you in here uh, tonight or listening online, how many of you are natural-born do-it-yourselfers? That it is your natural inclination to just figure it out. That if you have to change your oil in your car, you're just going to get underneath it and do it, and you're not going to ask 10 people how to, you know, and probably uh, you drain the transmission fluid by accident here and there. <laughs> You've done a couple things, but it's because you're a, a do-it-yourselfer, you know, and I am one. I'm guilty as charged. You know, I would just much rather figure it out by myself, and I think there's something in our human nature that we uh, lean that way. Um, number number two, question number two, is how many of you that are uh, do-it-yourselfers, you've carried that same mentality or that same uh, attitude or, or, or trait into your relationship with God, wherein, you know, you, you have come to know Him, you've come to trust Him, you've confessed Him as your Lord and as your shepherd, and you lean on Him for the things that you need Him for, 
but your natural tendency is that in your daily, moment-by-moment, routine life that you're familiar with, you're a do-it-yourselfer, that I don't really need God to help me go to work. I don't need God to help me decide when to cut my hair. I can figure those things out on my own. And sometimes maybe some things that we should consult God for, we find uh, that we don't because we are do-it-yourselfers. We figure it out on our own. Okay, third question. And it might seem unrelated to the other two, but it's not. And that is this, is that those of you, those of us that are do-it-yourselfers by nature, you find that you have become strangely overly dependent on your GPS app on your phone to get you places. <laughs> you know, it, normally you would try to figure it out, but you use the app and you just type in the address and you just go. You don't look at a map. You don't look at Google Maps and try to memorize it. You don't print up the line-by-line the -line thing anymore and put it on your passenger seat and try to figure it out. No, you just speak it into the Waze app or into the Google Maps app and you just go. And again, that is me. I do that all the time. And there's a reason for that. And that is because it works. It just plain works and it's easy, and so I do it. You know, we were on vacation, this is a couple of years ago, and we were driving back up Route 95, uh, coming back up north from the south, and we were in Washington, D.C. at a busy time. And, you know, you just kind of have the GPS on, and you're just going to do what the GPS tells you to do because this is not your area. And so uh, there was like this area where it, it was telling you to stay in the right lane and you can't really tell what's going on. And, and so you do what the GPS says and it took us off the highway and dumped us onto a city street there in Washington, D.C. And at first, everything within you rises up and says, this is awful. Like you want to throw your phone out the window. But then it said, turn right here, turn left here, turn right here. Drive about a mile, and you're kind of in the city, and you're going, this is awful, and then you get back on the highway, and you realize, we did realize, that right just south of where we got back on the highway, there was an accident that closed down three lanes, and the GPS actually saved us hours by taking us on a little detour through downtown Washington, D.C., and you go, yes, this is wonderful. I love this thing. And here's why. Because the app has information that you don't have. The app has access to data that you will find useful, but you don't have in the present moment. And you get to be the beneficiary of it. And those things build trust. You begin to rely upon it because it works and it's actually helpful. Well, I want to talk to you tonight from these two chapters, and I've given the message a title. It is GPS, and that is God, our positioning shepherd. GPS, God, our positioning shepherd, and you'll understand uh, as we get into it. Now, we are following the life of a young David who's been called by God to be king, but he has yet to come into that calling. He hasn't reached the fullness of it. He's being prepared. Now, God knows that it's not easy to be king. When you are the king of an entire nation, there's a lot going on. There's stuff happening on every side of you all the time. And God knows something about what that means because God is a king and God has a lot going on much more than any king that's ever lived on the face of the planet. 
And so God is preparing a king, and he's got work to do, okay? If you are a human king, you have a lot going on, but you have a limited capacity. You are limited to being in one place at a time. You are limited to doing one thing at a time. You can only give your attention to one thing at a time. You have a limited capacity if you are a king. There's many sides. There's many faces to it. There's many decisions that need to be made, and it's easy to get lost. Now, David will say at the end of his life, after he successfully reigned as king for 40 years, David will say these words about being a king. It's 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 3. He will say this. He will say that he that rules over men must be just or fair. And then he says this, ruling in the fear of God. In other words, it is impossible to be a good king if you are not connected to the king of kings. You must have something more than just your own capacity to lean on and rely upon and trust in if you're going to make it in the king thing, all right? Now, that means that leadership, especially on a king level, but really on every level, that includes parenting, managing, supervising, leading, teaching, any capacity that you are leading, it is essential that you understand that you cannot be independent, but you must be independence. And there's a big difference between the two. To be independent means I'm doing it on my own. I'm a do-it-yourselfer. To be independence means that there is something or someone rather that I'm relying upon. You know, every year we, we file our tax returns. And uh, for those of us that are heads of household, one of the things that we have to uh, take into consideration is the number of dependents that we have or that we're claiming. That is, how many people that we are responsible for are dependent upon us. And that is a consideration in how we pay taxes, how we are taxed, all of that kind of thing, because it's important, okay? Now, I wonder what it would be like for God to file a tax return. Now, we know that he doesn't have to do that. He can just put a coin in a fish's mouth and he can take care of what is necessary. But, but really, God knows how many dependents he has, right? Like if he were actually going to fill that out. And, 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 and the, the sad thing is that the number of technical dependents is much different than the number of actual dependents, Meaning that God has a lot of kids. There's a lot of people that belong to him. A lot of people that he has paid for, that he has blood bought, that he has put his promise upon that will be in heaven. But of that number, that large number, there are very few that actually depend upon God for all that he has called us to depend upon him for. He has a much lower level of dependence than he claims to own uh, an amazing thing, okay? So David is dependent upon God. We see that at the end of his life, all right? Now, one of the things about David that makes him successful is that David is called by God a man after God's own heart. And I believe that part of that, when it says that David's a man after God's own heart, it, it, it's communicating that David understood God's heart, that he had a grasp of it, an understanding of it. And David had a, had a fierce persuasion of God's goodness, that God loved him, that he was part of him in, in this whole thing. And, and David understood and had enough history with God to know that everything that happens in his life happens by God's measured intention. 
meaning God knows what he's doing, that no matter what happens to me, God is good. No matter what pain I go through, God is for me. God is with me. God is going to keep leading me. He's going to stay with me. And David believed that God was truly for him, and he was okay with the fact that bad things happen to good people. Because bad things happen to David, and it's not shaking David's faith in God. It's hurting David, he's feeling it, he's human, but it's not shaking his faith in God. It's not changing his persuasion that God is for him. Now, those that have that persuasion, that believe that God is for them no matter what, when they go through tribulation and trials, they will draw nearer to God because they believe that God is for them and they are dependent on him and he is their refuge. But those that struggle with that belief... That is, that they don't, they're not fully persuaded that God loves them, that God is for them. When they go through trials and troubles, they draw away from God. They sense in their spirit that, okay, well, I, God can't be trusted because if God did love me, then these things wouldn't be happening, and they draw away from God. And that happens, okay? Now, those that draw toward God in their afflictions, those people will flourish, grow, and overcome the situations that they're in. But the people that draw away from God when they go through trouble, they will get stuck, they'll become ensnared, and they will be defeated. Now, I say all that to say this, is that David is going through a time of unimaginable suffering and pain in this preparation that he's going into. But he is going to begin to flourish in his life and in his development even though he's still in the situation that hurts him, and we're going to see why in this whole thing. He flourishes from within the difficult situation, uh, not, not waiting until he's delivered from his situation, and it happens for a predictable reason, and that's what I want to share with you tonight. And so verse 1, it says this. It begins with a most profound word. It says, then. It's a time marker. It lets us know the sequence of when this happens. It says, then they told David saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. So message comes to David that, that the Philistines, those are the enemies they have invaded. They have taken over one of the towns of Judah. They have ransacked the people. They are stealing the crops. And it tells us when it happened. It says then. Well, you say, well, when is then? Then, for David, is when life is turned upside down, when he's going through a season of incredible loss, grief. His life is in limbo. He's living in fear and everything around him is in chaos. It's a very busy time in David's life. It's a time when he's looking after his family and he's concerned about their well-being because they're running from the same psychopath king that he is. It is in a time when he has the pressures of leadership being thrust upon him by 600 men that are in debt, that are in distress, and that are discontented, and they're all looking at David for him to lead them while he has nothing to even lead himself. That's when this comes to him. Not to mention, this all happens immediately after David makes an incredibly costly mistake. He told a little white lie, thinking he was protecting someone's safety, and the result of that was that 85 priests were murdered and an entire Israeli village was destroyed and ransacked because of David. 
Now, try carrying that and sleeping well at night. It was then that all of this takes place that we see in verse 1. It says, then messengers came to David and they told him that they, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are uh, um, stealing the food from their threshing floors. Okay, so David sees a news article. It's brought to his attention that the Philistines have sucker punched Keilah. They're stealing the harvest. And David now responds to that in verse two. Notice what it says. It says, therefore, David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. Now, this is so interesting because I look at David's response to this and I think, what would I do if I was in David's situation and something like this happened to me? I was brought this message that this happened. I honestly, I probably would say, man, that's a real bummer for Keilah. I would probably say to myself, you know, it's really too bad that Saul is the king right now because he's so busy fighting against people that aren't a threat to him that he's unable to take care of the people that need help because there is an actual threat to them, okay? If I was David, I would probably tweet, actually, I'm not on Twitter. I'm totally lying and just trying to relate to you, you know, but, but I would probably post somewhere a picture of Saul leaning on his pomegranate tree, being fed grapes by his servants. And on the opposite side of the page, I would show pictures of dead Keilahites and say that while Saul leads, people bleed. And I would feel really good about myself because I was, you know, addressing a, a real issue. That's probably how I would handle it if I, if I was in David's situation. And then I would think it's too bad. I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have the resources to help this but I love David because that's not how David responds to the situation at all. He doesn't react, he responds, and he responds in a most profound way. And that is that he looks up and he says, God, is there something that you want me to do in this situation? He doesn't blame anybody, he doesn't deflect the problem onto somebody else. He takes ownership of the fact that he now has the intel. He knows what's going on and he takes it to God and he says, God, is there anything that you want me to do in this? Did you bring this information across my heart and what might you want me to do? And notice that God answers when David asks. God says, yes, David, I want you to go and I want you to fight against Keilah and save them from their enemies. Now, the remarkable thing is that it tells us nothing about how God answered him. We don't know what, how this answer came to him. It's left completely out. We're going to find out in a few verses that there is a priest. The son of Ahimelech is with David, Abiathar, that he does have an ephod. And so it could have been through the priest that God answered. But we're not told in this instance how God answered David. And I find that interesting and, 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 and informative for you and I. Because it doesn't really matter how God answers. It's just the fact that God does answer when we call. Our responsibility is to ask. It's God's responsibility to answer. And so God will get the answer to us if we open our hearts and ask. And God does that for him. He says, go fight against them and, and save Keilah. Well, it says that David's men said unto him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah how much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? 
Okay, so David's men come to him and they say, listen, we're struggling with fear here where we're safe in this wilderness because we're familiar with it, but we're, we're, we're at least secure in, in the terrain, but we're still fearful. And so how are we going to go and fight against enemies in an unfamiliar place when we're not equipped and we're not armed? We're afraid here. How are we going to go and fight there? Okay, so they bring a genuine concern to their leader now who feels called by God to go do something about this, and he does not yet have the backing of the people that are there with him. And so what does David do? Well, he could have thought to himself, well, what did Saul do in this situation? Well, when Saul wanted people to go fight with him, he cut up a bunch of oxen, mailed it to everybody, and said, if you don't come and help me in this battle, this is what I'm going to do to your cows. David thought, no, that's not going to work. These people don't have cows, and I don't have cows. David says, I don't really know what to do, but I don't have the confidence of these people. So what does David do? Notice in verse 4. It says, then David inquired of the Lord yet again. And the Lord answered him and said, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. Now, it doesn't say that God spoke to David's men. It just says that God spoke to David. But by asking God to give him an answer again concerning the fear of his men, David accomplished two very important things. Number one is that David won the confidence of the people that were following him because they saw that he was not acting in zeal or in self-will, but in a genuine submission to what God might want him to do. And when the answer came back that God was indeed calling David to do it, it won their trust, not because David was strong, but because David was relying upon a strong God. So he won their confidence, but then he also brought success, okay? They were successful in the whole thing. They beat them back. Notice verse 5. It says, So David and his men went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a very great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Okay, so David goes with his men. He takes them into the battle, and he wins their confidence. And here's the amazing thing, is that this same group of fearful, discontented, indebted, distressed men that followed David into this battle and just won one small victory because they were following a good leader. These became what the Bible calls the mighty men of David. And so we read about these men, the ones that were there, and I'm not going to belabor the whole thing, but I want to just tell you about a few of them. One of them, his name was Ishboshim, and it says that he grew in his strength to a point where he lifted up his spear against 300 and he slew them at one time by himself. So a man that was once fearful to go in as part of an army is taking on a whole army by himself. Another one, it says that, that, um, that they went down to the, the, or I'm sorry, one of the, three of the guys that were part of David's band, when David just said, I'm thirsty and I would love a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, three of David's men went through and they broke through enemy lines just so that they could play capture the flag and get a, a cruise, a, a skin of water from this well in Bethlehem, and they brought it back to David successfully. They lived through it. Another one, Abishai, who is Joab's brother, it says that he went against 300 men and he slew them and gained a name amongst the three, his brothers. Another one's name was Benaiah. He was the son of Jehoiada. And it says that he killed two lion-like men of Moab and he went down and he slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And he slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature, who was eight feet tall. 
And in the Egyptian's hand, there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff, plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. You see what happens when, when, you, when you lead by prayer? When you bring God into a situation and things aren't looking too good, what God can do with that situation? He turns these fearful men into warriors unlike the rest of the world has seen or the world has seen since the time of David. Well, it says in verse 6 that it came to pass that when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. And so, again, the priest, I have no idea what an ephod is. I have searched that word. I have looked at it. It's a robe. It's some priestly garment. It, it was in conglomeration with the breastplate. It doesn't say here that it was the Urim and the Thummim, the, you know, the lights and perfections, but maybe it had something to do with that. But there was something there with the priest that David uh, um, was able to inquire of God, and God was able to give answers to David. But I read those verses and, and comment this way um, because I, I, want, I want you to understand something. Actually, let's read a little bit further. It says this. It says um, in verse 7, it says that it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And so he said to Abiathar the priest, bring here the ephod. And then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. And then he prays and he asks God a very specific question. He says, will the men of Keilah deliver me up into the hand of Saul? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And so David asks two questions. He said, listen, first of all, is Saul going to come down here? And second of all, will the men of Keilah, whom I have just saved, will they hand me over to Saul as a fugitive? And God says, the first, the answer is yes, Saul will come down. Then verse 12, David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you up. <laughs> Don't you love that? That's people, <laughs> right? I mean, here's David. He goes in, he saves the city. He rescues their food. He stops the, the, the siege of the Philistines. He's the hero. And then he says, God, are these people going to hand me over to Saul? And God goes, yep, that's exactly what they're going to do. Listen, that's a very important lesson for leaders. Mom, God, are my kids going to betray me? After all that I've done for them, all the meals, all the band-aids, all the nights staying up, rubbing their back while they're throwing up, all, after all of that, are they going to? Yes. Yes. But that doesn't stop you from being their mom or from the calling that I've given to you. It says that David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah. And they went whithersoever they could go. They scattered. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah. And he forbear to go forth. Listen to me. God answers prayer. Do you know that? God answers prayer. David prayed about a news article that he read about a situation. And God answered David's prayer. 
David prayed about a struggle that those whom he was leading, that they were having. And God answered his prayer, helped them through their struggle, and turned them into victors. David prayed about an intuition he was having about someone in his life that he thought might betray him, and God answered his prayer and gave him information that he would get from no one else. David prayed about how someone else would move, King Saul, okay? And God answered and told David what he needed to know. It's an amazing thing that when we pray, God answers, okay? Now, here's what the New Testament says to you and I. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, pray without ceasing, And that means that do not ever say that I've got this one God, or I know what to do, or I know what this means, or this is just like every other time I'm reading the news, or whatever other common situation you might find yourself in where you think it doesn't mean anything, don't leave God out of it. Pray about everything because he wants to engage with us, and he will answer if we ask. Philippians chapter four, verse six, it says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things. How many? By prayer and supplication, make your requests known unto God. We are to call out to him and his promises that he is going to answer us. It isn't up to us to know how he's going to answer us or what he's going to do. It's just a matter of us saying, I'm going to rely upon you because you are trustworthy to do what you say that you're going to do. I think that one of the reasons why God will strip a man or a woman down to nothing, like he has done with David. I mean, David has nothing at this point in his life. But one of the reasons why God will do that is to bring us into a place where he is all that we've got. And when God is all that you've got, you find that God is all that you need. And then when God begins to raise you from that place where you've lost everything, because he has shown himself trustworthy, the hope is that you won't leave the place of depending on him, even for things now that maybe you don't need to depend upon him for. He is that reliable, he is that near, and he wants us to be engaged with him in the way uh, that, that he has called us into. I believe that David's mistake that he made at the end of the last chapter has a part to play in this as well. Remember, 85 priests killed because David's white lie, the whole city of Nob just destroyed by this evil man Doeg because of David's white lie. That was such an innocent thing that David did. I mean, he went to the priest when he was in trouble and asked for bread. And he didn't even give up the, the, the real issue. You know what I mean? It was really like, we would call that the right move. If there was multiple choice, like, should I go on welfare? Should I go get counsel from, from a spiritual person? Should I rob a bank? Or should I run and hide? What's the right answer? B, go to the priest, get some counsel. We'd say that was a good thing. But we never read in there that David prayed. We never read that David inquired of the Lord and said, God, what do I do now? He didn't do that. He just said, I got to do something. And he went and did it. And it turned into a disaster. You ever do something that you thought was a safe move and it turned into a disaster? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, it's something that happens all the time. And I think David came out of that experience on the other side and he said, I am never 
taking one step for the rest of my life without including God in it and asking him what I should do in this. Because I am so unable to see beyond what's going on in front of me right now that I will screw up my entire life making the best decisions I know how to make. Because my vanishing point is just that close to the front of my face that I can't see clearly. And so David said, I am going to enlist the help of the shepherd who sees all things, and I am going to get in the habit of talking everything over with him, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant it is. And God comes through, and David is beginning to flourish even in the midst of all his trouble because he's trusting in God. He's putting God in the middle of all of it. It's a good thing to do. Well, David, verse 14, it says that he abode in the wilderness in strongholds, and he remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. So God leads through prayer. He is our positioning shepherd, and he leads us and keeps us through prayer. He also leads us and keeps us through his providence. It tells us right there in verse 14 that Saul was actively looking to continually assassinate David, but that God kept Saul from coming into David's company to keep him from killing him. Meaning that God is supernaturally protecting those people that he loves. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose... And he went to David in the wood and strengthened his hand in God. Now, we know that David and Jonathan had a a friendship, a covenant. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. And you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And that also Saul my father knows. That's the reason he wants you dead, David. And they two made a covenant before the Lord. And David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house. And then came the Ziphites to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the wood, in the hill of Hekilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed be ye of the Lord. Isn't it amazing how how evil people can invoke the name of God in such a flippant and vain way. For you have compassion on me. Go, I pray you, prepare yet and know and see his place where his haunt is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he deals very subtly. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides himself. You put spyware on his computer Spy on him through the camera lens in his phone. Find out what websites he's been on, where he's going on. We will ambush this guy. We're going to get him. We're going to find him. And he says, it will come to pass that if he be in the land, that I will search him out throughout all the thousands of Judah. And so they arose and they went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. And Saul also and his men went to seek him. And they told David, wherefore, he came down into a rock and he abode in the wilderness to Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on this side of the mountain or one side of it. And David and his men on the other side of the mountain. 
And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David or surrounded David and his men round about them to take them. And so here's this cat and mouse game that's going on now where David is in one wilderness and Saul runs there. Then David goes to another wilderness and Saul follows him there. And then finally Saul's men surround David on this one mountain where they're running around it. And then one half of Saul's crew goes one way, the other goes the other way. And David is finally caught. He's entrapped in this whole thing. But watch what happens in verse 27. It says, but there came a messenger unto Saul saying, haste thee and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Wherefore Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore they called that place It means rock of escape. And David went up from thence, and he dwelt in strongholds and in Gedi. And so there's this amazing cat and mouse thing, and, the, and, and Saul is, is unable to um, now grab David. Now, just think about it for a minute. If David was a pessimist, if David was a glass half empty kind of guy, or one who was apt to complain about the things that were going on in a public way, what would be the perspective of David in this whole thing? God, you hate me. God, you're against me. You're, God, you're trying to kill me. And it's just a matter of time. And any day now, he's going to get me. And, then, you know, and he would just go on. Now, if you read the Psalms, there was a little bit of that in David, not to make him so far different than we are. <laughs> you, know, you read what he was going through, and he did have complaints, but he poured out those complaints before God, and he held himself together in the middle of it. And he had this amazing perspective that he knew that God was with him, even though things looked really bad. Now, Chapter 24 is going to explain to us David's perspective. How could David, in the middle of all this, keep himself so faithfully with the Lord? Notice verse 1 of chapter 24. It says that it came to pass that when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told to him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. That means to use the bathroom. You know, what do you, when you cover your feet, you're disrobing yourself a little bit. He went into this cave, at least he hid himself. And it says that David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. All right. Now they're going, oh, please, no. <laughs> we have to live here. Really? You know? But how amazing. And it says that the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as, seem, as it shall seem good to you. This is it, David. This is your chance. Grab your sword, Goliath's sword, and go do to Saul what he's got coming, coming to him. And so David arose and he cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. And so he stealthily sneaks over to the place where Saul is. I have no idea how he did this. I know he held his breath. And he cut the little skirt, the border of Saul's robe, his kingly robe. He cut the border of it off and, and then he kept it and he withdrew. He pulled back. 
And it says that it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. In other words, he didn't hurt Saul. He didn't kill Saul. He just, he just wanted a little bit of evidence. We'll see why in just a minute. But it says that he felt a conviction from God. That the Spirit of God in his heart turned on the check engine light and there was the thing inside that he said, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done it. Now, the skirt of the robe, the border of the robe, is a symbol in the Bible of the authority. Remember when Jesus was walking in, 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 in the midst of all the crowds of people? And it says that the multitude was thronging him so that no one could get near him because of the pressure of the people. And there was a woman who had an issue for 12 years. She had been bleeding and no doctor was able to help her for all of those 12 years. And she said to herself, if I can just touch the border of his garment, I know that I'll be made well. And so she kind of crawls through the feet of the crowd, touches the hem, the border of Jesus' robe. And it says that the, the issue of blood was dried up immediately and she knew that she was healed. And Jesus stopped dead in his tracks and he said, virtue has gone out of me. Who touched me? And he knew that something had happened. Now, the authority of who Jesus was provided power to heal this woman in her need. And that's throughout the Bible, the border, the high priest's garment, the bell and the pomegranate that would surround the base of the border of the priest's robe. It was a symbol of his authority, the bell being the symbol of the gifts and the pomegranate, a symbol of the fruit, the imparted authority of God. And so David symbolically here is cutting into the authority of Saul. He's cutting away the authority of Saul symbolically. He's taking a shot at his authority. He's, he's essentially spiritually saying like, you're not the king, your authority's cut off. And he kind of knew it because after he did it, there was a conviction in his heart and he thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And he says, why in verse six? And he said unto his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. He said, I can't kill him. I can't hurt him. I shouldn't even be touching his clothes. He calls him his master. He's still my boss. He's still the king. And he is still the anointed of the Lord, wearing the crown that God placed upon his head. So David stayed his servants with these words, and he suffered them not to rise against Saul, but Saul rose up out of the cave, and he went on his way. Okay, now I know what you're thinking here. You're thinking, okay, David, you said to your men that Saul is the anointed of the Lord, but he's actually not, because we read already before that God said that Saul no longer has my authority. I have taken it away from him and I will give it to someone who's better than him. So Saul is actually not the anointed of the Lord technically, which in a court of law might give David the right to, in the laws of war and peace, take, take him out. I mean, he's trying to kill me. I'm just defending myself. This is self-defense. But David doesn't say that. David said, no, he is the anointed of the Lord. You say, why does David say that? Here's why, and I want you to listen carefully. Because though maybe Saul was no longer the anointed of the Lord in the authority of kingship, 
He was the anointed of the Lord in David's life as an instrument of preparation. In terms of what God was doing in David's life, Saul had been placed in the position of chief tormentor in order to bring David the kind of character and the kind of dependence upon God that he would need to be a good king later on. And the reason why David ended up thriving, not just now, but in his future place as king, is because he was completely submitted to whatever God wanted to bring into his life to make sure that he was fully prepared and ready, even if that meant extreme humiliation and pain. If Saul is what it takes, then God, use Saul in my life. God, if it takes an overprotective parent, God, if it takes a psychopath boss, God, if it takes an emotional spouse, God, if it takes a neighbor that I can't stand, whatever it takes in my life, God, I see these things as your anointed prescription in my life to produce the kind of man or woman that you're trying to make in me to shape me for what's to come. And that was the attitude that David had in this thing. It is holy what God is doing uh, in my life. So David arose afterwards and he went out of the cave. Now, I love this part. And he cried after Saul saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. So David takes the knee out of reverence and respect to Saul. And David said to Saul, wherefore, or why do you hear men's words saying, behold, David seeks your hurt? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord had delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the skirt of your robe and killed you not, Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my soul to take it. I could have pierced you through the heart, and instead I just took the border of your robe. Let that be proof that there's no ill intent or ill will in me towards you. The Lord then judge between me and you, and the Lord avenge me of you, but my hand will not be upon you. As says the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand will not be upon you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? You're the king. You have the resources of the, the armies of Israel, and I've got nothing. I'm in a cave, and, and you, you're chasing after me like I'm some dog or a flea. So the Lord, therefore, be judge and judge between me and you, and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of your hand. And it came to pass that when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded you evil. And you have showed this day how that you have dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into your hand, you killed me not." For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward you good 
for that you have done unto me this day. In other words, no one would do what you just did, David, in the situation that you're in. But in so doing, you showed that you are a man of integrity. And now behold, I know well that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Swear now, therefore, unto me by the Lord that you will not cut off my seed after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swear unto Saul, and Saul went home. Watch this. But David and his men got them up into the hold. In other words, David hears Saul's relenting, Saul's repentance. He sees Saul call off the hunt and go home with his men. But David doesn't go back to his home in Judah. He goes back into the cave. He goes back to En Gedi, to the strongholds. You say, why? Because David knows this ain't over yet. David knows it doesn't matter what Saul says. It matters what Saul does. And David knows that God's not done. And so David knows that Saul's not done. And David is right. Don't get too excited when people kind of come and tell you everything that you've been waiting for them to say. Because when you put your trust in people, no matter who those people are, you are going to falter and fail and be humiliated every single time. David learned an important lesson in Keilah. In Keilah, he said, well, the men of Keilah, whom I have just saved, deliver me into the hand of Saul. And God says, you bet they absolutely will. And David knows intuitively that though Saul is singing his praises right now, it is only because Saul's life was spared and he came within an inch of death and survived. But when the emotion of that wears off, the jealousy of Saul will rise up. David has seen this happen with him over and over again, and he will not put his trust in a man. David is right on schedule in his preparation to be the king because God is teaching him to rely only on him. And that is the goal. That's the end game. We are living right now, you and I, in a time where it is getting increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to navigate the circumstances of the world that we're living in right now. Do you remember when, when Jesus was on trial in front of Pilate? And here's Pilate. You know, he's kind of a prefect of Rome. He was the king of Jerusalem. He was like a big person in the whole scheme of what was going on in the Roman Empire and the political scene of his day. And when Jesus was brought before Pilate, and, and he said, why are you silent? Why don't you defend yourself? Why don't you speak or say something? And Jesus didn't say much. All he said to Pilate is he says that I came here to bear witness of the truth. That's what Jesus said. And do you guys remember what Pilate said to Jesus? He said, what is truth? And I can imagine the sneer. What is truth? He probably spit in Jesus' face and would have infected him with something if he could. What is truth? Pilate said, what is truth? And you just think about the profundity, is that a word, of what Pilate said when he asked, what is truth? Here's a guy whom everyone in Israel is looking at and saying, he knows what's really going on. He knows the conspiracy. 
He knows what Caesar the emperor is doing. He knows that, every, that they're trying to take over the whole world and squash out our nation and take away our freedoms and our Bibles. And, our, and he knows what they're trying to do. And here's a guy who's involved in the very plot of everything that's going on. And he looks truth in the face, doesn't recognize it and says, I don't even know what's going on around here. And that's the world that we're living in right now. It is impossible to know what's going on in the world that we're living in right now. And I don't care what voice you're listening to. I don't care what inside track you have to some intel. <laughs> I don't care what information you have or who you know. Nobody knows what's really going on in the world right now. It is that cloudy. That's the circumstances that we're in today. And there is one who is the truth and who knows what the truth is, and that is God Almighty. There is no other one. About You guys know, if you know me for any length of time, I, I used to be a lot more into prophecy. You know, I, I would give prophecy updates one or two times a year and say, oh, this is where we're at, you know, in Israel and Iran and Ezekiel 38, and, you know, we're into all this, you know, and, and I stopped. Four, five, six years ago, I just stopped. And, and Pastor Bobby would say, when are you going to do a prophecy? I said, I'm not. And he said, why? I said, because it's impossible. It's so cloudy, you can't see it. Because what's being told to you isn't necessarily the truth of what's going on, and there's no way to trust what it actually is. And so there's a lead, and you chase it, and you follow it, and you look at it, and, and then as soon as you think something's going to happen, the whole paradigm shifts, and that doesn't even matter anymore. It's not even relevant. And so you're constantly chasing after the scene that you can't even see. And I say, I can't see it anymore. I understand what the Bible says is going to happen. And so I'm going to put my eyes there and I'm going to put my trust in God and I'm going to live like he could come back right now. And that's where my peace is going to be. And that's where it's been. Now, Jesus said to us that that's what's going to happen. He said that the night is coming when no man can work. Meaning, what is night? Night is darkness. It means you can't see. You can't see at night. And so Jesus, things are going to get so crazy that you're going to try to figure out what's going on, but you're not going to be able to figure out what's going on. So he said, here's the instruction. Here's what you're to do when you find yourself in a world where you can't find truth and you don't know what's going on. He said, look up. Everybody say it. Look up, he said, because your redemption draws nigh. He didn't say, look out. He didn't say, look around. He didn't say, figure it out. He didn't say, champion whatever truth you could find and put it out to as many people as you could. He said, look up. And when we look up, we pray, we rely, we are led, we are providentially kept and preserved we are moved through what is knocking everyone else down. And God fulfills his promise and his word to his people that he says, I will never leave you or forsake you even to the end of the age and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church or my people. Now, that's true about the world that we're living in, but that's true in our individual spectrums, our individual situations. I am a parent and parenting was so easy when my kids were three and four and five. They did what I said. They believed everything I said. 
It was so simple. But now they're at an age where they think for themselves, they read for themselves, they see for themselves, they are themselves. And all of a sudden, I don't know how to parent anymore. It's too hard. It's unclear. And so what do I do? I look to the one who sees all things, who knows all things, and I put my full confidence and trust in him. I inquire of the Lord about the struggles that they're going through. I inquire of the Lord concerning the decisions that need to be made for their lives. I inquire of the Lord concerning the decisions that they're making for their lives that I think are going to be a train wreck if they keep going. And he is able to do what I am not. It's true in my marriage. It's true in financial planning and planning for the future. You just can't see it, but he can. That's why he calls us to put our full trust and reliance on him. And what this segment does, chapters 23 and 24 that we just read, this testimony of David, and what God wants to do in our lives is that it gives us permission to appropriate the grace of God in our lives to a place where we put our trust in him to lead us and keep us even if we don't deserve it. He's for me. He's with me. He's my help. He's almighty. He's sovereign. Bad things happen to good people, including me, and I'm okay with that because I trust him that on the other side of it, I'm going to look back and say, thank you, God, that you as my positioning shepherd pushed me off the exit when I didn't want to get off, and you pushed me through a detour that I didn't want to detour, but I'm thankful now that I come to a place where I realize that I saved five years of shipwreck because you saw something I couldn't see. Anybody in here ever come down Route 9 from Hyde Park and your full intention is to get on the arterial and head back, and you accidentally, in a moment of distraction, take the exit and get on the bridge to go across to Highland? Am I the only one that has ever... If you do that, you have just lost 25 minutes of your life that you can't get back. There is no fixing that. Okay, and, and every single day, there are things, decisions that we can make, distractions that can push us in a, in a way. It could cost us years. But we have a shepherd who promises that he's with us, who will hear us, who will help us. And whether it be the times that we're living in or the situations that we are in specifically individually, we are called to put our full trust in him. And he says that they that trust in him will not be ashamed. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for, for, for the example that you've given us through this young king who awaits his crown. And we choose tonight to declare that we trust you, God. We trust you with our path. We trust you with our circumstances, our families, our present and our future. We know you know what's going on. And so we trust in your sovereignty and we lean upon your almighty grace. And we ask you, Lord, that you would show favor to your people in these days. So help us, Lord. Teach us. Turn our affection and our attention completely towards you. And cause us to look up. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God be with you. Stand with me as we close in song. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. 
To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.